It's Valentine's Day, and while our show is still family-friendly, um, we are discussing aphrodisiacs today. Um, we will be using medical scientific terms as much as possible, but just wanted to give you guys a heads up in case you were listening with little ones and uh, you didn't want to get into that, or if you're listening with your parents and you don't want to get into that. Welcome back to Blender Kitchen. We have a new little friend here in the studio, Huckleberry Finn, joining us for a brief stay. So if you hear more than one noisy cat today, that's that. I think he's going to be a very good guest, though. He seems pretty quiet. So today, we're going to dive into delicious, sensual foods, because it's the Valentine's Day episode. Um, this is our first full episode with the new mic, so that's exciting. Um, just a few bits of housekeeping up top. All of our recipes and research is now up on a convenient website, blenderkitchen.com. Head there for, you know, all your resourcey needs. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at BlunderKTCHNPod and on Instagram at BlunderKitchen. Uh, today is jam-packed. It was really hard to kind of squeeze this into our normal time run, but uh, it was really exciting. Um, definitely a deeper dive than some of our other episodes, and I'm really excited to share with you guys. Aphrodisiac comes from the term of Aphrodite, referring to the Greek goddess Aphrodite or the Roman goddess Venus, who was the goddess of love, of fertility, of family. And in those times, uh, during the ancient Greek and Roman times, it was believed that certain foods that invoked the spirit of Aphrodite or of Venus would help you um, get it on, you know, would help bring up the mood. Um, So that's where the origin of aphrodisiac starts. Now, in those times, uh, it was really geared towards, you know, like having children. (laughs) Um, so most of the very ancient Greek and Roman aphrodisiacs have to do with curing infertility or encouraging, uh, fertility or encouraging, uh, the mood for, you know, children to make kids. Um, but that's definitely, it's come to mean something quite different today. Um, Historically, infertility ranged from, you know, an inability to conceive to just an inability to get into the mood. Um, Whereas today, infertility is still kind of like very built on that idea of an inability to conceive. 
but um you know it, there are many different ways of having a family now um and there are ways that you could be experiencing infertility that don't have anything to do with um reproductive organs you know or tradi the traditional ways of conceiving um so I, i'm not going to get too much into that definition because this is not a health podcast this is a food and history podcast and that's kind of like really sciencey uh but i I did think it was important to point out that difference um, because some of the things that you'll see are that are used for aphrodisiacs in the ancient world are very different from what we consider aphrodisiacs today. Throughout the ancient world, fertility was really linked with land prosperity and prosperous times. Um, you know, it was encouraged for you to have more children and some of this might be in prosperous times, you know, you can afford to feed more children, but also, in, especially in agrarian-based cultures, more kids um, help you remain prosperous because they grow up to help you farm. But also, um, if, you're, if the land, the country is not doing well, there's a famine, uh, there's not enough food. If there's, if you don't have enough food, you're undernourished. If you are not n well nourished, um, there's a loss of libido. Um, depending on how undernourished you are, there could be a loss of fertility, whether that be um, sperm motility or uh, the health and viability of embryos, uh, just a, a host of reproductive issues can follow, uh, you know, undernourishment. So a lot of aphrodisiacs that are foods that we have been using as aphrodisiacs for a while come from that kind of place of, well, we can eat and this food boosts your health and therefore your fertility and therefore it's good for you and you should continue to use it. And that's kind of an idea that um, we've kept up with in the, in the modern age. Many of our aphrodisiacs today that are uh, science that have been scientifically looked into have to do with really just boosting your immune system. Um, the overall trend is if you are healthy and happy, you're going to have a, a good um, sex life. Uh, it, one follows the other. I tried to arrange some of this research according to oldest to, uh, you know, modern day, but the truth is a lot of these aphrodisiacs were used by a number of different groups that coexisted during the same time period in history. Um, so it's kind of difficult to pin those down, especially since there weren't a lot of specific dates that I could find, just mentions to groups of people. So the ancient Egyptians um, had a number of aphrodisiacs. Um, not sure if they call them aphrodisiacs, but um, that's what we're going to call them. Um, pomegranate juice mixed with wine was a popular one. Um, as we'll get into when we go over Roman and Greek aphrodisiacs, wine was a huge... Um, 
boon. Uh, you know, it was uh, seen as a, a medicinal thing. So a lot of things were mixed with wine to to cure certain ailments from the flu to cuts and colds. So it makes sense that um, in a medicinal sense, it would be mixed with um, mixed with things to to heal problems of a reproductive nature. We'll get into why pomegranate juice may have been considered uh, a, a boon a little bit later, but uh, let's go through some of those some of those other things. Uh, ambrine or ambergris, which is uh, an, a hormone found in whale gut, was used. Um, modern day tests have shown that this increases testosterone. Uh, it increases women's libido. In Arabic folk medicine, it was also used to uh, cure headaches and increase sexual function. So, um, kind of seems like overall health um, and wellness, again, you know, um, that we, you could see that this is a medical approach. Um, but it, this is one of the few foods or aphrodisiacs or applications that we really see for women. <laughs> not a lot, um, not a lot that I could find that address things for both men and women or solely women. It was mostly focused towards, uh, things of a male nature. And in this show, when I refer to male or female or man or woman, that's really just based on a typical reproductive hormones that you produce, um, whatever those hormones may be, um, especially in today. Um, it was a lot easier to sort out into what kind of reproductive hormones it encourages, um, but in the ancient times, they weren't as, well, history that we have written doesn't point to, to things in terms of hormone levels as well. So, um, male and female, uh, keep in mind that we're using them in terms of what reproductive hormones you, you produce. Um, and that's just from you know, where there are chemical reactions. I digress. I feel like I've gone off the rails a little bit on that one. Back to the ancient Egyptians. Um, saffron was another popular aphrodisiac. Um, today, it's been found to increase sperm motility and decrease some of the sexual side effects of uh, antidepressants. It's been said that Cleopatra would bathe in saffron-infused milk as an aphrodisiac. And that just sounds delightful. You know, that sounds like uh, something that would be, that should be promoted even on your own as self-care. That sounds fantastic. I imagine it would do amazing things for your skin. Carrots were also used. Um, Middle Eastern royalty used them as a tool of seduction in the ancient times. Um, 
not a lot to be said on this. It's thought uh, maybe their phallic shape had something to do with it. But um, carrots also carry um, a high level of beta carotene and vitamin A, um, chemicals that we'll get into in a in a little bit more later on. But those things promote healthy immune systems, healthy bodies. And um, as we've said earlier, healthy bodies mean more chances of producing a baby. So moving right along uh, into the Greeks and Romans. And let me tell you, um, a majority of the aphrodisiacs that we're going to discuss are from the Greeks and Romans, and it's um, stuff that has really persisted even to this day, and then some stuff that we don't use at all. So, um, like the Egyptians, pomegranate juice mixed with wine was popular, and this was because pomegranates were really associated with um, Aphrodite, and it was uh, uh, hearkening back to, you know foods associated with Aphrodite and you mix that with medicine of that time, wine, and you have a powerful cure-all to uh, infertility. Mandrake root was also thought to be um, an aphrodisiac. And this was thought, this was suggested because mandrake root has a similarity to a womanly shape. It does look like a a curvy lady is crossing her legs. Um, and it was thought that it would cure female reproductive problems. Um, this was really a time period of like cures like, or what's been called the doctrine of, uh, it escapes me. (laughs) Literally the word fell out of my head as I needed to say it. Uh, Man, we're just going to move right along. Uh, but it was thought, you know, that if if it bears a similarity to a problem that you're trying to fix, it must fix that problem. Um, oh, uh, there were a lot of mixtures with wine. Uh, opium with wine, um, an herb called satyron with wine, a root vegetable or an herb, quite unsure, couldn't find a lot on it, skirret mixed with wine. If anyone knows what skirt is, please add us on Twitter. I would love to know what that is. There were a number of lotions uh, that were introduced. Um, These were for topical application um, to a a penis. So mostly for men. There was a lotion called Deadly Carrot. That's all I've got for you. Unsure why it's called deadly. Unsure why it's called carrot. Um, just that it existed and it was used. Um, there was a honey and pepper mix, as well as nettle oil and Spanish fly. Nettle oil um, is oil from the stinging nettle plants, which is a poisonous plant, and Spanish fly is an oil made from these kinds of beetles. Um, which is also uh, toxic. 
and induces an inflammatory response. So the the Greeks were all about inflammation. It was kind of thought like if you inflame certain areas, it will put you in the mood because, you know, that's what happens uh, biologically when you're in the mood. Those those areas do get uh, inflamed. So it was thought if if you are if any time it's inflamed, it's a it's a good time. It's a good thing for those purposes. Um, some less um, stingy, some less spicy um, aphrodisiacs were honey. It was said that Hippocrates, uh, Hippocrates, Hippocrates, yeah, uh, used it to increase his vigor. Uh, lots of throughout the research, everyone referred to. Uh, sexual prowess as vigor. Olive oil was used. Um, today we see that olive oil has antioxidants, which are good for supporting your immune system. It's a healthy fat, so it supports um, good heart health. Um, in ancient Greece, it was thought that olive oil would increase libido. Um, green olives specifically for for men who wanted to increase their libido and black olives for women who wanted to increase their libido. Celery was also used. Casanova, that famed uh, playboy of, of ancient Greco-Roman times, used to eat celery. Um, in the Odyssey, when Calypso kidnaps Odysseus for five years, her home is surrounded by wild celery celery kind of um indicating that this was a spicy time a, a romantic time uh just in case anyone needs to hear it that's not um that's not a good way to get someone in the mood don't kidnap anyone that's not a it's not blunder kitchen approved um Today we see that celery does contain small amounts of androstenine, and that is a pheromone that males produce that females find attractive. I feel so odd referring to to at males and females, but I don't have a better way, guys. And this is about chemicals, so we're just gonna. Keep it pushing. Let's dive a little deeper into pomegranate. So we already mentioned that pomegranate juice used to be mixed with wine as an aphrodisiac. Um, today, we see that it has antioxidants. It can lower your cortisol levels, which in, improves your heart health. It can increase testosterone, which makes sense as to why, you know, the ancient... Greco-Roman peoples were seeing some results. Um, in addition to using it as a tool to get it on, they also used it to aid with erectile dysfunction um, and, you know, to cure some other issues in the bedroom. Strawberries were another aphrodisiac because they were heart-shaped. So they reminded the eater of the shape of Aphrodite's tears it was said that Aphrodite cried heart-shaped tears, like our Valentine traditional heart-shaped tears, 
after she found out that Adonis had died. Adonis was her lover. Um, today we see that strawberries are high in vitamin C, um, magnesium, and potassium. Vitamin C aids in the production of certain reproductive hormones as well as boosts those chemical neurotransmitters that increase libido. Magnesium calms your nerves and your muscles. It's good for improving physical stamina and general well-being. Potassium aids in the production of reproductive hormones. Um, there's also some folate in there, some antioxidants. Folate or folate acyl also aids in the production of reproductive hormones. And antioxidants are good for you know, boosting your overall health. So um, some, some benefits there that we can see in today's terms. Because I know that, um, you know... Sometimes it's nice to, you know, what is the silence behind it, we often ask. Artichokes were a, another food that were seen as an aphrodisiac. Today we see that they have antioxidants in them. Um, what's it quite sure why the uh, ancient Greeks and Romans would consider this an aphrodisiac? Um, it became known as such after Zeus turned a woman into a spiny and difficult plant, the artichoke, after she said, hey, no, I don't want to get with you. Thanks. Um, which, given some of uh, Zeus's other behaviors throughout the uh, Grecian myths is a, a blessing. <laughs> oh, I'm glad uh, that she was merely a difficult and spiny plant. Arugula was seen as a very powerful aphrodisiac. Um, this is also called rocket. In fact, it was so powerful that it had to be mixed with lettuce at meals to prevent, and this is a direct quote for some of our research, the erotic energy from overpowering the meal. Now, lettuce was seen as a powerful anti-aphrodisiac. Um, basically, if you needed to really calm down, eat some lettuce. It's going to calm me down right away. Um, if you need, if you really feel like you want to be in the mood, arugula, instant. So salads were always mixed with these two um, leafy vegetables to really make sure that you had a balanced meal. You didn't want to get too riled up at the table. Um, basil was another symbol of love in ancient Rome. Today we see that this um, delicious herb is full of vitamin A, which has been proven to be good for fertility, beta carotene, um, great for eyesight, so really just improving your overall health, um, magnesium, potassium, vitamin C. So there were a few... Um, Less less uh, likely, less obvious uh, aphrodisiacs, things that have definitely fallen out of use. Uh, the skink, a really cute lizard that uh, kind of has a little bit of a puppy mouth, kind of. No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry it said that. Anyway, the skink is a lizard. It was thought that the feet, skin, and urine of the skink uh, could be used as... 
male aphrodisiacs, and Pliny the Elder recommended all of those in different preparations to be used to cure infertility. Sparrow brands were also used to increase lust. Um, today we think of, you know, rabbits as being pretty promiscuous, but the ancient Greeks and Romans thought sparrows were pretty promiscuous, and then it was thought of they th if the sparrows think promiscuously, then if we eat their brains, we will also think like that. Um, asparagus has been mentioned in Grecian love poetry, and some ancient recipes show that it was advised to be applied in a paste, I'm assuming topically to the specific area. Um, Satyrian, a little bit more on that. We talked about mixing with wine earlier. Still not quite sure what this is or what we call it today. Um, but it's back to that like cures light thing. It was thought that mixing this with wine would give you the prowess of satyrs. Uh, that's, uh, like horn, like footed beings, like forced spirits, uh, that were seen to be promiscuous. Um, some other herbs, uh, all, and condiments really seem to be aphrodisiacs, anise seed, mustard, nettles, uh, as we talked about a little bit earlier, and sweet peas. Pliny the Elder, an ancient physician, recommended vital spirits, um, which ranged from anything, uh, wine, meats, uh, Think foods that were perceived to be filling and um, that would boost your stamina. Uh, Galen recommended foods um, as an aphrodisiac only if they were warm and moist, if they produced flatulence because it was thought that flatulence would fill your body with wind, thus... Um, inflating any necessary body parts that needed to be inflated and spicy um spicy foods were good as well again with that inflammation thing in ancient india ashwagandha which is in the nightshade family it's also called winter cherry or poison gooseberry was mixed um into a a food called Shatavari. I'm really sorry about my pronunciation, guys. This is used to increase male fertility. Um, it was mixed with nutmeg and honey. Both um, ashwagandha and nutmeg were seen as aphrodisiacs and are used as aphrodisiacs today. And when mixed with milk and nutmeg, um, this drink was both an aphrodisiac and good for a good night's rest. Um, the roots smell like horse urine, so it was thought to give the user strength, the strength and stamina of a horse. Um, this is mostly good for male fertility. Um, there's an herb called bindi that uh, is used in Ayurvedic medicine. This grows in like a super dry climate. It's used to improve athletic performance, increase fertility, and increase libido for women. 
Fenugreek was also used in ancient India. It increased libido, it increased phytoestrogen, which is a reproductive hormone for women. Uh, um, today we see that it contains phenylethylthymine, which is uh, a chemical in our in our body that um, sim stimulates excitement. It's also got tryptophan, which I know we automatically think of turkey and sleepiness, but um, it's a chemical like many others in our body, and it increases serotonin levels, um, which is serotonin is the happy chemical. Um, Musili is another herb which was used to cure impotence and is used today in Ayurvedic medicine. There were a number of preparations for marijuana. Um, it was, in Ayurvedic medicine, it ha was and is and has been used uh, to stimulate the appetite as a decongestant, as an astringent when applied to the skin. Um, and it is seen as a powerful sexual stimulant in the tantric tradition. Um, there is also a diffusion of turmeric, uh, a preparation of turmeric, which will increase stamina. Um, the Kama Sutra, which is an ancient... Uh, Indian text of uh, love advice. Uh, it's that's really simplifying it. It's very complicated. It's an excellent read. I do highly recommend it. Um, on a historical level, uh, you guys get your get your minds out of the gutter uh, and also open up your horizons. Um, but in the Kama Sutra, milk and sugar with prepared in different ways uh, was recommended to increase strength and sexual vigor. In the 8th century, Samhita of Sushutra recommended ghee boiled with eggs and testes and or testes of alligators, mice, frogs, and or sparrows and to use that to lubricate the soles of, the, of a man's feet so that uh, he will be able to have sex with vigor for as long as his feet do not touch the ground. In ancient Chinese medicine, ginseng uh, was used to treat uh, erectile dysfunction and increase libido. Today we find that it does affect the nervous system and alters uh, the reproductive hormone process allowing it to affect libido and performance. Ginger was also used. It was said that Confucius added ginger to every meal. It has been shown to uh, aid with impotence and increase your heart rate. Ginkgo bilbo is another traditional Chinese medicine. Um, it's used to increase blood flow and relax blood vessels, um, all things that help help you get in the mood. Uh, horny goat weed is a, a traditional Chinese medicine cure for erectile dysfunction. It's something that is still used today. In a Chinese medical text from around 2600 BC recommended an aphrodisiac potion with 22 ingredients that allowed the emperor to have sex with 
1,200 women, after which he achieved immortality. Sadly, we have not been able to um, ascertain the exact ingredients of that aphrodisiac potion. Um, another popular 7th century um, aphrodisiac was a, a drink made from marijuana, milk, water, and various spices. In the New World, we have uh, chocolate, which was said that uh, Montezuma consumed a ton of chocolate to fuel his love life. We also have maca, which is a sweet root vegetable that today we eat as a powder. Um, it grows exclusively between 400 meters and 4,500 meters in the Andes Mountains. Um, it was called the food of the gods by the Inca and eaten by ancient shepherds and livestock and their livestock to increase libido, increase energy, increase stamina, increase fertility. And today we find that it does work against the loss of libido due to taking antidepressants. Avocados were also um, an aphrodisiac. It comes from the Aztec word ahuatl, meaning testicle and it's thought that it it came from this word because they do grow in pairs and they are shaped similarly to that human body part um so that much like the carrots led them to the shape of carrots similarly to the story of carrots led avocados to become an aphrodisiac to the aztecs um in parts of ancient Colombia, leafcutter ants were eaten. I'm not sure if this practice still carries on today um, because they increased arousal. Uh, ants are actually super high in protein. So right back to taking care of yourself. I think the overall theme of today is if your body feels good, you will feel good and your love life will flourish. So, medieval Europe. Uh, Europe always has some interesting things for us. Um, lots of things that they would call medicine, but were highly influenced just by, you know, biases. Little tame today. Um, chili peppers were considered an aphrodisiac in medieval Europe. This is mostly due to their status as being exotic kind of more of a psychological thing you know you can afford to buy me chili peppers because you have a lot of money which is attractive to some people you know uh likewise potatoes were also seen as uh exotic and they were an aphrodisiac as well um asparagus it was said that 19th century french used to serve three courses of asparagus on someone's wedding day um, honey, it's an aphrodisiac. The Vikings used to drink mead on their honeymoon. It was called a honeymoon because honey was harvested during the new moon so that it would be able to, uh, you know what? My notes aren't even clear on this, uh, but I'm sure it's more clearly listed in one of our lovely, um, sources up on the site. I don't want to give you <laughs> incorrect information. 
I'll probably double check that after recording this and tweet at ya. In the 16th century, women were banned from eating artichokes because it enhanced erotic energy. So we can see that artichokes are hanging around, picked up in ancient Greece, still around in medieval Europe. Nutmegs uh, were, were aphrodisiacs to the ancient Germans. A German folktale tells the story of a girl who ate a nutmeg, defecated it whole, crushed it, and secretly fed it to her crush so that he would fall madly in love with her. And she was successful. Uh, I don't really know the title of that folklore. Um, I'm going to dig into that because that's a wildly entertaining story. Today, there are many aphrodisiacs from ancient history that we still use and some that are new. Uh, the new ones are almost all geared towards increasing libido, increasing, uh, you know, the mood, wanting to uh, have sex. Um, whereas the ancient ones are almost all focused on fertility. Just going to run through a real brief list of the ones from ancient times that we still use today. Let's go. Cinnamon, ginseng, saffron, olive oil, chili pepper, ginger, celery, asparagus, avocados, chocolate, pomegranates, honey, strawberry, cherries, artichokes, arugula, basil, bindi, ginkgo balboa, red ginseng, fenugreek, horny goat reed, mandrake root, ambergris, um, whew, there's a lot. Spanish fly, muesli, I think I said that twice, uh, and carrots. And there's some new ones. Um, like I said, all of the new ones are really about promoting health and getting in the mood. Pine nuts, apples, pumpkins, champagne, you may be surprised at champagne. It's actually proven that small amounts of alcohol can reduce inhibition, um, which increased desire. But it's a delicate balance. Too much alcohol can actually decrease desire and uh, decrease performance and cause a number of other health concerns over the long run. But this is not a health podcast. This is a food podcast. Figs, um, salmon, watermelon, almonds, date palm, and then um, some traditional uh, medicinal, med, um, uh, traditional medi. Ugh. Let's try again. Some traditional um, herbs that come from traditional medicine throughout various regions are still used today. For example, yahimbe bark, which comes from West Africa is also known as the herbal Viagra. Muko Kumbero, which comes from Kenya, has been used to treat erectile dysfunction. Thai blackberry, Thai black ginger uh, is used all over Southeast Asia to improve male sexual function. Long jack uh, is seen in Malaysia as the symbol of male strength and ego, and it's 
eaten to increase male virility. Uh, Kirajari is a fungus found on a caterpillar that grows in the mountains of Nepal, China, and Tibet. Uh, and date palm, which grows mostly in North Africa on the Arabian Peninsula and in, around the Persian Gulf, um, treats male infertility. So I know that this is a bit of a long episode and there's a lot and you're just listening to this in the Uber or in the car on the way to your hot Valentine's date. And you're like, look, you just threw so much at me. I thought this was going to be like kind of a practical thing. And what can I make for my sweetheart? It's Valentine's Day. Well, overall, take care of yourself and the rest will follow. Um, You know, I think even throughout ancient times, yes, they were trying to fix infertility when today we're mostly focused on fixing wanting to get in the mood. But everything kind of targets health and well-being. So, you know, I guess what's sexy is being healthy. Um, But if you're like, that's great. Thank you. I still need a recipe for tonight. Fear not. We've got you covered. This recipe is adapted from the book Comagua para chocolate in chapter 3. In this chapter, a lovesick woman prepares a meal for her family, but it is so imbued with uh, the feelings of her lusts that everyone is reminded of a deep feeling of love. She essentially unintentionally seduces her entire family. This recipe serves two. Four quail or six doves three tablespoons of butter, salt and pepper to taste, six peeled chestnuts, boiled, roasted, or canned, one clove of garlic, half a cup prickly pear fruit puree. You can substitute raspberries if you are unable to find prickly pear fruit in your area. One tablespoon of honey, a quarter cup of chicken stock, half a teaspoon of ground anise seed, quarter teaspoon of ground cinnamon, 14 teaspoons of rose water. It's very important to only use teaspoons. First, you'll want to heat a serving platter. Set a serving platter to warm in the oven set to low. While that's warming, rinse the quail and pat dry. In a large frying pan over medium heat, melt the butter and lightly brown the birds on all sides. Add sherry, salt and pepper to the quail, lower the heat, cover, and allow it to simmer for 15 minutes. After 15 minutes, turn the quail over and cook an additional 15 minutes. Place the quail on the heated platter. Combine the remaining ingredients with the pan juices from the quail, transfer to the blender, and puree until smooth. Pour the sauce into a small pan and simmer for five minutes or until slightly thickened. Pour this sauce over the quail that you have placed in the heated platter and serve hot.
sprinkle with rose petals. Um, if you're going to put rose petals on your food, please make sure that they are edible. They should be organic and not pesticide treated. Happy Valentine's Day. one today thanks for sticking in there guys uh if you enjoyed this episode or if you just want to help us out could you go ahead and add five stars on apple Podcasts, or follow the show or share this episode with a friend um it just helps increase our exposure helps get us out there in some more ears and you know the more people that listen the more fun things that we can do um Thanks, guys. You can find us on our social media. That is at BlunderKTCHNPod on Twitter and at BlunderKitchen on Instagram. For a easy-to-read uh, version of the recipe, head over to BlunderKitchen.com, and there you can also find links to all of our research for this episode. Bye!